Welcome to our live broadcast. For those of you who are watching this later on, just be aware that we broadcast usually at five minutes to nine p.m. Eastern time. And for those of you wondering where you can ask questions, we do that at meditation.sirimangalo.org Tonight we're looking at I'm going to look at number 130 in the Nikaya Book of Ones starting at 130 actually we're going to flip around a bit jump a bit, skip a bit. We have three parts to tonight's Dhamma that we're going to look at, and they're all tied together, so it's good. So at one thirty, the Buddha starts talking about Yete bhikkave bhikkhu adhammang dhamoti dipentite Dipenti. Whoever explains that which is not Dhamma as being Dhamma. Debikkave bhikkhu bahuchanahitaya. Bahuchana ahitaya, bahuchana ahitaya, and ahitaya. They act for the great detriment to many people. They practice. They are practicing patipanna. Bahuchana sukhaya, for the great unhappiness of many people. Bahuno janasa anataya, ahitaya, dukhaya, deva manusana. They work for the great suffering of many people. And he goes on, he talks about, uh, he says, uh, they, they make great demerit, apunyang pasawanti. They bring forth great evil. They cause this, and they cause this great good dhamma to antara. Antara means antara, antara dhapenti. They cause it to decline, to fade away. Then he goes on to talk about the vinaya, those who describe what is not vinaya as vinaya, those who say what I didn't say as being that which I said. Hello, all you people who post fake Buddha quotes on the internet. Say that which he didn't, that's what he said. Uh, say that he didn't say it, that kind of thing. That which was practiced by the Buddha, say that he didn't practice it. That which he didn't practice, say that he did practice it. That which he prescribed, say that he didn't prescribe it. 
these people are acting for the harm of many people, for the unhappiness of many people, for the ruin, harm, and suffering of many people, with angels and humans, both, both mortal and divine. These bhikkhus generate much demerit and cause this good dhamma to disappear. So why I think this is interesting to talk about Because it brings up the question of what exactly is the Dhamma, right? No, it, first before that, it, it makes clear the fact that there is a certain subset of teachings that are the Buddha's teachings, and this is important. Not all teachings are Buddhism. That should go without saying, but somehow it doesn't. Not all religions are the same. The Buddha didn't teach what you practice just because it's what you practice. No. Yeah, that's maybe a silly thing to say, but the problem is it, 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 we, we forget this very simple and obvious fact. We start to, it's common to label that which we believe as the Buddha's teaching. And I think that uh, it's true even on a more subtle level. We think that we're practicing the Buddha's teaching and without ever um, reflecting on our own practice, it's very easy to begin to practice that which is not the Buddha's teaching and even promote that which is not the Buddha's teaching to um, through greed, through attachment or through aversion to pervert the Buddhist teaching in our own mind. And that's really a, a very good reason to have clear source for what is the Dhamma so that we don't just fall into what appears to an objective observer to be calling something Buddhism just because it's what you practice. We start to say, well, you know, drinking is okay or killing is okay. I have to say that the Buddha uh, was okay with greed and anger and delusion. Well, maybe not delusion. But it's common to start to believe, like there was a teacher, modern teacher recent, in, in the recent years who began to claim that an arahant, it's not that they don't get angry, it's that they don't follow the anger. It's not that they don't get greedy, it's that they don't follow it, you see. But then it brings up the question of, well, how do we know that that's not true? How do we know what is actually the Buddha's teaching and, and what is not? And maybe another, uh, maybe another question, maybe one that partially answers that is, who cares what is, what is the Buddha's teaching and what is not, right? Is that really the most important thing, that this is the Buddha's teaching and this is not? Why, why I ask that, I think it, it may sound a little bit silly, but why I ask that is because um, you know, the only reason it's important is because we, actually, we, we start with the belief that the Buddha is fully enlightened. So the teachings are not good because they're the Buddha. 
the Buddha's teaching, some historical person. But they're good because they're true, because they're a sign of enlightenment, because not even because they come from an enlightened being, but they're good because um, coming from an enlightened being, they are true and they are pure and they are beneficial. And so that starts to bring us to an understanding of, um, or, or an answer to this question of how do you know what is the Dhamma and what is not? Before we do that, let's um, we'll just make an interlude here to, uh, we'll go in order. So recap, we have the Buddha explaining about what is and what is not the Dhamma. Well, how do you know it's not the Dhamma? How do you know what is the Dhamma? And I've sort of already answered that by saying, well, you know it because it's what a Buddha teaches. It's what an enlightened one teaches. And I think that, better than any other answer, is a really good way to get into this, this question. Because if you say, well, it's in the books, right? That's the biggest mistake religion makes. They say, well, it's in, it's in our texts, it's in our religious texts, so it must be true. You take textual authority, and the Buddha actually cautioned against taking textual authority. Textual authority is not a very good authority at all. It can be, but usually temporarily, because texts change, are adapted, are translated. You think the Tipitaka hasn't changed? Well, just translating it into English has changed it in a hundred different ways. Meaning, with all the different translations, different translations are nuanced in different ways. Sometimes passages are reinterpreted or interpreted in different ways. To think that the, if you think that the Tipitaka is actually the words of the Buddha, words and, and therefore pure enlightenment you might not have a problem with someone like me who tends to you know, agree but it doesn't really sell buddhism right i couldn't come up to someone who was dubious and say well look it says right here and have them believe me because they don't know where these books came from and they have no reason to believe them but we've got a better source than that we have the buddha and this is getting on, this is why I said we have three parts, because if we continue on, we see the next thing in our texts is about one person, chapter 13, talking about the Buddha. Why is it important that the Buddha be our source? Because the Buddha is the one person who arises in the world for the welfare of many people. That's the point, is that the teachings of the Buddha bring welfare to many people, happiness to many people. Why? Because he is a Tathagata, one who is thus gone. Whatever that means, one who is an Arahant, means worthy or accomplished, perfectly enlightened, Sama Sambuddho. But of course that doesn't answer our question because, well, one, the Buddha is not here, and two, 
even if the Buddha was here, well, why should we believe what he said? And so we have to go further. It's a good start, I think. Why is it a good start? Because let's scroll right down past all the um, disciples of the Buddha and get on to chapter 15. And this will get into a little bit more meaty stuff, dhamma stuff. The Buddha says in 268, it's not po it, is po it is impossible and inconceivable, bhikkhu that a person accomplished in view could consider any conditioned phenomenon as permanent. There's no such possibility. But it is possible that a worldling might consider some conditioned phenomenon as, in, as permanent. There is such a possibility. And he says the same about pleasure, about sukha, meaning satisfying, and self, controllable, belonging to oneself. And he goes on to other things, but the point here is that the Buddha's making claims. He's making claims about reality. These texts are Buddha, not Buddha, let's say these texts are. They're making claims about the reality and they're making claims about an enlightened being. They're making claims that there is such a being that attains a state, and it's not a state of concentration or absorption, but a state of understanding such that through their understanding they have no doubt about reality they have knowledge and that's not an insignificant thing to say because science doesn't give you knowledge and and by that i mean science gives you evidence doesn't give you proof we've talked about this before what i mean by saying it doesn't give you knowledge is that you don't know for sure that's actually science isn't afraid to say that it's it's one of the things that's they pride themselves, you know, science prides itself on modern science. That they don't try to claim to know something. They only provide evidence and try to come up with conclusions that are based on evidence, but with with the knowledge that their evidence might come to to make them change their conclusions. But that's because or, well, anyway, the claim that's being made here is that there's a different kind of knowledge, a special kind of knowledge, one that science frowns upon. But it's a special kind of knowledge, and the claim is that once one knows this, once one sees this, it's a certainty. Whether you can prove it to someone else, there's an unshakable certainty. Not like how we're certain about other things, but through our meditation practice, through the practice of the Buddha's teaching, you come to see things with unshakable certainty. And it doesn't mean you're just really sure. It means there's no possibility to believe otherwise. That's what the Buddha is saying. It's a claim, a categorically different type of knowledge. It's a claim that there's a categorically different type of knowledge. It's true knowledge. Putting that aside, even, even, even that knowledge aside, the point is that there's, there are claims being made about reality, and you can investigate these claims, just as you can investigate the claims of any religion to some extent. And if the, claim, if the claims are not investigatable, then you have to suspect. But that's what's being done here, is in Buddhism we have claims, claims that 
All conditioned phenomena are impermanent. And claims that, maybe not a claim, but a, a, a discrimination between people who see that and people who don't. Pointing out the fact that it's not even all that hard to understand intellectually that all things are impermanent, but it's very hard to act like it. It's very hard to get to the point where you actually live your life based on that reality. Instead of living life based on a delusion that things are otherwise. We live under this delusion. We live under the delusion that things are stable. The illusion of stability. It's really a silly way to live, you know. It's like um, playing Russian roulette, you think everything's stable you know probably everything's going to be good i'll just live my life and get old and die and that's you know i'll live a good life some people do some people are lucky other people are not so lucky and you don't know which one's going to be you and people who get shot run over and get sick early you know sick young kind of thing there are People who become crippled and suffer great loss. You know? This is a part of, this is a potential in our future. But even more so, our very experience, our very reality, and you know, all the things we hold on to, they cause us suffering, they cause us stress, they cause us, well, they have the potential to anyway. It is possible to experience lots of happiness for some time. But even still, the funny thing about the things that we enjoy in life is that it's actually very little enjoyment. There's actually very little enjoyment involved. There's the claim being made. You know, there are a lot of people who would disagree and would say, wow, life is a human life full of pleasure. And that's the point. There's a claim being made that that's not true, and there's a claim being made that there are people who can see that, and that there are two types of people, the people who see it and the people who don't. So it's, this, is, this is how we understand um, that what is the Dhamma and what is not the Dhamma, because if that's true, well, then we consider that to be the Dhamma, and we consider it to be somewhat brilliant if it's true, because most people don't see that. Most people are scrambling valiantly to gain stability, satisfaction, control. We strive for this. We try to find ways to control so many things, everything. And so if it were true that uh, then it would be a sign that there are there is a person or people who teach this who know something we don't. And that's how we start to approach an understanding of the Dhamma and the Buddha. Because the Dhamma is nothing other than the truth. That's the claim. The claim is that the Buddha taught the truth. The claim is that there was a person named the Buddha who understood things that most of us would never have any inkling of, let alone come to realize on our own. Um, and that 
but that teaching is uh, that teaching is the hidden truth. Remember these three things: impermanent suffering and non-self. This would be. This would be considered to be the Dhamma. He goes on, there's more things here. The point being, meditation should be an empirical practice. It's not something that you have to believe in. We want to benefit ourselves. We come to meditate to learn things that we don't understand. Because as individuals, people who come to meditate, we tend to realize that you can't just go through life chasing pleasure and enjoyment. It doesn't actually satisfy. It doesn't actually make you happier as a person. And so we're seeking a new understanding, realizing that our old understanding just isn't, or isn't enough. It isn't sufficient. We're hurting ourselves. We realize that. So we come to meditate, or we have the potential to hurt ourselves. We're 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 in um, we're insufficient. Our knowledge, our understanding is insufficient. So we come to learn, and that's what meditation is. You're learning. You're learning about your mind. You're learning about your experience. You're learning about the world around you. And these are the things that you learn. Not even actually things that are difficult to comprehend intellectually, as I said, you know, impermanence. Well, yeah, I mean, everything comes and goes, okay? But we don't act like that, that's the point. So what we're doing is training ourselves, not just intellectually understanding things, but training ourselves to see things. Again and again, looking and looking until finally the mind's, I get it, and the mind lets go. Because you watch yourself clinging again and again, and you know that it's not helping. And you just throw your hands up in the air and frustration, and so much frustration realizing how hopeless it is. You can't control your mind. You can't force yourself to let go, right? Until finally you get it. It just sinks in. It becomes real. And you see impermanent suffering non-self. Suffering just means it can't satisfy you. You try to fix it, you try to control it, you try to hold on to it, you suffer. You let go, and then you don't suffer, you're happy. So we have some lessons here. The first lesson is be careful. Be careful when you say, this is the Buddhist teaching, this is not the Buddhist teaching. The best way, easiest way is to quote texts, right? It's a very easy thing to do. But it's not, it's not really satisfying or sufficient. It's easy, and it's easy to parrot these things out. But much better is learn these things for yourself. Learn the truth for yourself. If the truth you find when you meditate is not this truth, fine, give this up throw it away, burn it, don't look back. But what's great about these texts is they're a guide because they describe 
what you will find. They do explain what you will see about reality. Uh, but once you've, the point is, once you've realized these things for yourself, then you don't need books. Then you can say what is Dhamma and what is not Dhamma, and that's what it gets in this, in this 268 and so on. Once you see it for yourself, then it's not possible that you'll describe things as permanent and stable and satisfying and controllable. You'll change. The way you look at things will change. The way you relate to experience will change. No longer trying to control or cling or fix everything. You become flexible and peaceful, content, happy, what we all want. So, it's a little bit of Dhamma for tonight. You have a little bit every night. We'll get through this. We'll get through the Buddha's teaching eventually. There's a lot of it. Anyway, let's get on to some questions. Robin isn't here, I don't think. I, I told her I didn't need her last night, so she ran away. I don't know. Did it sound like I didn't want her? That I didn't appreciate her? I hope not. Just felt cons uh, considerate. Didn't want to make her feel obligated. All right, questions. Sometimes my eating gets out of hand. I just lose all my mindfulness and eat a lot. Maybe it's for filling out a void. Is that a question for me? Um, it's not a very clear question. Sounds more rhetorical or something. Um, but eating, huh? Well, you're always going to have things that get out of hand. And the first step is to stop beating yourself up over it. When you get angry about something bad, it makes it worse. It's like you have a thorn or you have a sliver of wood in your, in your side, and you take another sliver to try to get it out. You're just making things worse. That's what we do. We attack our problems. It's not a good thing. So, so be, become, you know, uh, be objective about your addiction. Okay, so here I am, addicted. It feel much better and it will eventually the only way to give things up is to get bored of them you have to realize that you can't force yourself to let go but as you observe and, and really look and say oh boy this is not really making me happy then you'll start to let go don't worry too much about it be mindful good will come it'll work itself out there are a lot worse things than eating a lot yeah, it's not good for you if you eat a lot but Killing would be worse. Stealing would be worse. Yeah. Work on it slowly. Greed is not something you can give up overnight. Work on it. I'd like to ask if a hingsa in regards to food means vegan or vegetarian to you or Buddhists. Thank you. Nope. No, you can safely attack 
stab, burn, chew, swallow, all the meat you want. And I guarantee it won't suffer. There's no violence being done. On the other hand, you could argue that if you attack a wooden uh, dummy or something, a mannequin, it's violent, right? There's anger, but it's not the same type of anger. If you pretend to kill someone, like an, uh, and you attack it with a sword or something, if you know that it's not alive, there's something missing. It's not violent in the same way. People don't understand that. I think if you've never killed, it's hard to understand that. You've killed a significant, significantly large animal, or ever killed animals at all, it's hard to understand. But if you have, well, if you've meditated, if you practice meditation, you can understand. There's something missing there. It's not the same. So no matter how much hatred or malice you have towards the meat sitting on your plate, or your barbecue, or whatever. It's not really violent. There's still ahimsa. Have the Buddha's teachings been altered in some ways, or were they preserved exactly as he said it? I don't know. Probably altered. Probably, you know, it's been a long time. I imagine it would be quite difficult to get it exactly right. I think it's remarkable how pure the teachings are. Which, you know, Theravada Buddhists will often complain about Mahayana texts because Mahayana texts are obviously manipulated for the most part. Once you've read through the Theravada texts, it's really no comparison. They've just gone way overboard. Theravada texts can often be over, be seem to be somewhat exaggerated or go overboard in certain ways, but it's a totally different realm. You know, these texts are obviously by a different author or group of authors. If you compare Mahayana sutras with Mahayana sutras, uh, you know, the, the popular Mahayana sutta, sutras. Um, so that kind of gives us confidence in the earlier teachings, the Theravada, the Pali, Pali, the Pitika, because it's so simple and uh, unaltered, un, un, unwavering in its strict um, explanation of, of specific of the, of the a specific set of teachings. There's nothing new or shocking. It's all pretty much homogenous, which is you know it's it's refreshing to see it's so consistent and and such a depth to you know a breadth to it in depth but i mean who am i to say exactly how it's been altered but that was sort of the point of tonight is through the practice you can verify certain teachings and then you know you 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 have the dhamma you have the buddha's teaching you have the teachings of a Buddha because a Buddha is one who knows the truth regardless of whether the historic Buddha did or didn't that's the definition so we have this type of person a person who knows the truth once you know the truth you can verify whether the person who wrote certain teachings is a Buddha 
because those teachings are or are not the truth that you've realized for yourself. An increased awareness of my negative emotions has caused me to see some negative emotions in others as well. I find it difficult to look past these. What can I do in order to separate judging others and the beneficial analysis? Yeah, I, I mean, honestly, it's not that you're seeing the negative emotions in yourself. I would argue, I would argue that um, what you're seeing is just another negative aspect to yourself. I mean, I guess, I guess you, you realize that. But you have to see it as that, you know, part of what you're seeing is your judgment of others. That's part of your negative emotions. You're seeing that. Now, the fact that you can see negative emotions in others hasn't changed that, but it's just made you better able to act upon your negative, your your judgment of others, your your um, what the recrimination. Or the, your judgment of others, judgmental, judgmentalism, judgmental nature. You don't have to look past them, so because seeing them is not the problem. The problem is you're judging them. So that's what you have to look at. When you know that someone is angry or greedy, or deluded. If you just know it as that, there's no problem. Problem is you judge. So that's what meditation is designed to do. It's designed to help us to stop judging, to be objective, to approach things just as they are, without any reaction or judgment. Are all phenomena impermanent, including Buddha nature? Buddha nature is not a Theravada Buddhist concept. But, and it's also not a phenomenon, you know, from my point of view. It's a concept. You have to understand what phenomenon are. And the best way to do that, read my booklet, Start to Meditate. Recommend it. Try it out. See what you think. And you can hopefully start to understand what we mean by when we say phenomenon. Phenomena. I'm into weightlifting and eat four meals a day. Do you think this is something that will hinder my meditation practice? Yeah, I mean, yeah, because you're not meditating all the time. Being into weightlifting is probably going to take some of your energy away, mental energy, I mean, not just physical, because you are keen on it. That's where you're inclined. You're inclined towards weightlifting. You're into it instead of being solely into meditation. That's not a big, that's not a, a, an indictment because everyone's into things, you know. It doesn't mean that just because you're into things doesn't mean you can't meditate. It just means you're not going to progress as quickly as, say, someone living off in the forest meditating day and night. Or someone here in our meditation center doing an intensive meditation course. If you did, we'd have to say, don't do weightlifting during your course. Um, but the eating part, 
Now, eating itself is not a problem. It could be a problem. If you eat a lot, you're much more likely to become addicted to food, right? And addicted to the many things associated with eating because you're doing it a lot. And if greed arises, you're going to be more and more greedy about it. Attachment and so on. There's a potential there. So whenever your mind is distracted from the meditation, there's a potential for it to become a problem. Not a big problem. Things like weightlifting, it's not. It's fairly innocuous. Problem is, you you get obsessed. You know, you can get obsessed with your body. You know, how your body looks, uh, what shape you're in. I remember joking with a meditator. He at Doi Sutep way back when I was up on the mountain at Doi Sutep. This one meditator. He said every day he would jog during the course. He would jog down the steps. And if you know anything about Doi Sutep, there's like 300 steps. I don't know. It's a huge amount of steps. Uh, he would run up and down them every day. And he said he wanted to stay in shape. And I laughed at him. And I said, what do you, you want to stay in shape? What, do you, what kind of shape? Square shape? Circle shape? You're kind of being a little bit... Actually, I can't remember if I said it to his face, but I was laughing about it afterwards. Because it's... You know, it's funny that we're concerned. Anyway, the point is we get concerned about our shape. We want to be this shape or that shape. It's a funny expression, I suppose. But I understand. You want to understand the idea of how we look. And if you get obsessed with that, it's problematic. Because your mind is no longer objective. You're no longer here and now. But... Clear to be clear, it's not that big of a deal. You can still meditate. You can still start to learn what is true and what is false, what is real, what is fake. If someone gets shot, how does meditation make you more peaceful from the extreme amount of pain you're in? Not wanting to cling to it, it seems as if it clings to you. only because you're untrained. You know, a Buddha can, an enlightened being can experience great pain and be completely at peace with it. That's the claim. I can show you how that's true. Come and do a meditation course with us. You know, our meditator here, boy, he's going through some pain, but he's starting to realize you can experience pain as just pain. He's in pain because his legs are, are not, well, they're getting better actually, but when he came, he wasn't able to sit with his legs flat down. His legs were up. I was the same. Back pain, head pain, all sorts of pains. When you come to see them, it's just pain. It's a training. It's not, it's not intellectual. I mean, you suddenly say, oh, okay, right, it's just pain. No. You have to change your mind. That takes time. Is playing violent video games okay if it's not real killing? I've answered this recently. Um, I mean, it, it's not okay in the sense that it's entertainment. It's okay in the sense that it's not really killing. So you're not really killing anything. And that's what I was saying just earlier, actually. Um, it's, not, it's not like it's breaking a precept, but it's breaking the seventh precept. Entertainment is, is a detriment, small detriment to your practice. So during an intensive course, you wouldn't want to be playing video games. That's all. 
I mean, there's argument, I've talked about this before, there's argument that can be made that if you're focused too much on killing, it can make you cruel. But, you know, if you look at the studies, no one's ever really made a very strong connection there. If you're already inclined towards violence, it can reaffirm that, certainly. I see Elaine has a question, but she hasn't figured out how to do the proper notation. You have to click on the, there's a little question mark in the bottom left corner, you have to click on that. Unless you're on Android, in which case it's a little more difficult. Um, right, where is it? In what ways have the Mahayana gone overboard? Well, you know, read some of the Theravada Buddhist teachings, read some of the Pali suttas. Now, if you Elaine, you've started meditating, so you know, through your meditation practice, the teachings should be fairly clear. It should, oh, okay, yes, this relates to meditation. And you'll get a, a feel of the taste, the flavor of the Theravada suttas. Then go and read one of the Mahayana suttas. You'll find it's a whole other kettle of fish. Read the Heart Sutra. No, the, the Lotus Sutra, not the Heart Sutra. Heart Sutra is a, I don't, I'm not fond of the Heart Sutra personally, but I think it's objectively better than the Lotus Sutra. Lotus Sutra is a good example of what I'm talking about. Maybe difficult because it's such a long thing. The Lotus Sutra is an entire book, but it's just a different flavor. You know, skip, skim through the Lotus Sutra, you'll see what I mean, if you've studied Theravada texts. I don't want to go into too much detail. It's not really all that. It's not really our focus. Is it better to meditate, for example, three hours or split it into three sessions of one hour? How long is too much? There's no such thing as too much, but for most people, there's going to be a limit because you'll stop being mindful. And when you start being mindful, you'll lose your, you know, you'll lose the benefit of it. Um, so there's, you know, three hours are split into three sessions. Objectively, there's no difference. But practically speaking, if you do three sessions spread out through the day, you're much more likely to be continuous about it. If you do three hours in the morning, the 21 hours that you're not doing formal meditation, it's much more likely that you're going to fall in your mindfulness. So practically speaking, I think there's no question. Three one-hour sessions is going to be far better if they're spread out through the day. Does a CPAP machine hinder your ability to meditate? I don't really know what that is. It's is that something that helps your breathing, I think. Um, vitamins, no, shouldn't. But you know, vitamins can increase the amount of hormones, I'd imagine. You know, if you if you're too healthy it's going to give rise to more of the chemicals that give rise to addiction and, and lust and so on. High cholesterol pills, I don't know. I doubt it. Um, yeah, I don't, but I see what you, you, sort of the theme of what you're saying is body can affect the mind. I mean, yes, you have to be somewhat careful because we react to things. And if it's a strong, the stronger the, the experience is, the more likely we are to react to it. Doesn't mean you can't, but extreme 
states are going to be to your detriment. This is why you don't want to eat too much. You want to keep things fairly, fairly calm and fairly easy to deal with, at least in the beginning. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I had, I've had people doing doing with dialysis machines doing meditation. Um, so they had to do dialysis every day, and they brought this machine and I guess plasma. I, I mean, I don't really know. But they have these portable dialysis machines. Two people actually. It was really interesting. In California, one person came, and then another dialysis patient heard about it, and I had these two dialysis patients doing courses with me. And they did really well, because they're very dedicated. Sometimes they had to do just lying meditation. I think during the dialysis, they have to lie down. I think it was dialysis machine. I think that's what it was. I mean, what, where we really draw the line, as many of you have heard, is that psychoactive medication. Um, only because this type of meditation is directly related to what the psychoactive meditation is usually supposed to do. It, it's to help you avoid the situation that we are trying to observe and come to terms with. So you can't come to terms with something that you're avoiding. That's how I look at it. Is it wrong to say that people who are unwholesome, that they will be reborn a lesser being for their bad karma? It's not wrong to say. I mean, it's not a sure thing. First of all, people are not unwholesome. Mind states are unwholesome. You'll find that people generally have, obviously people generally have both wholesome and unwholesome, right? We're a mix. Some people more unwholesome than wholesome, for sure. Such people are much more likely, well, are generally headed in the wrong direction. That's what you can say. You can't guarantee that they're going to be born as a lesser being, but you can hedge your bet. You can place a wager on it if you're a betting person. If you could possibly no, but yeah, it's the general, it's just a general, karma is just a general, for most of us, it's just a general understanding. You do good, well, the results are going to be good. You do bad, well, the results are going to be bad. Kalyanakari, kalyanang bapakari, japapakari, which means what I just said. Can you meditate too hard? Don't meditate too hard. It shouldn't be too hard or too soft. If it feels too hard, you're probably meditating too hard. If it feels too soft, you're probably too soft. Try and be like a dancer or be flexible. Just go with it. Now you have to be able to distinguish that between ex uh, being patient with hard experiences. Like your mind might feel like it's going crazy. That's not a sign that you're doing anything wrong. Just let your mind go crazy. You know, let that craziness happen. That's the point. But as soon as you start to control your mind, try to force your mind, shut up, 
quiet down, calm down, then you've got problems. That's meditating too hard. Is seeing deformed people as people who are evil in their past, is that right view? It's a good, it's a good explanation, yes. It's not exactly evil in their past, it's that they made a mistake when they died for whatever reason. When they were when they passed away, and you could argue probably during the time in their womb as well, um, their minds were affecting the body. You could argue that there are other reasons for it as well. But I mean, one of the big reasons for where we're reborn is our state of mind. So if you're reborn in a place surrounded by people who Say your parents say your your mother drinks alcohol when you when you're in the womb. Well, there was a reason, you know, there was some reasoning behind choosing her as your mother, that kind of thing. But uh, a corrupt mind will, I would argue, corrupt the fetus. That's obviously flying in the face of physical science for sure. But that's the Buddhist theory. Wouldn't worry too much about it. Although, it's really just an extension of the idea of do good, get good, do bad, get bad. There's claims of certain ways that that takes shape, like when you die. It's a claim that uh, the, this law of karma affects that. It's pretty reasonable. And it's, it's very elegant. It's internally perfectly consistent. So, um, if you want an explanation, you may not enjoy the explanation, but if you want an explanation for why people are the way they are, karma is it's much better than God, of course, um, but it's even much better than evolution and just natural selection, which seems intoxicatingly um, complete and perfect. It doesn't get beyond the what to the why, you know, like, Oh, I don't know. I mean, it, it is it is a fairly good explanation. All, all that Buddhism does to the idea of natural selection is includes the mind. points out that there's another factor that is generally overlooked, and that's the efficacy of mental states. Is it okay to listen to Buddhist chanting while meditating at the same time? Um, no. I mean, if you're listening to Buddhist chanting... You're not aware of it as hearing. I mean, if you are, then yes. When you hear the sound of the chanting, you say hearing, hearing. It's fine, but there'd be no reason to put on Buddhist chanting to do that. You could argue it's a good reminder. If you're listening to Buddhist chanting, it's a good, you could use it as a reminder to be mindful because, oh yeah, that's Buddhists or something. That's why listening to a Dhamma talk can be a good time to meditate because you're always reminded to meditate, potentially. Is it effective to use the eight akusala jitta combination with whatever you're doing? I don't understand. Do you know what akusala jitta is? Akusala means unwholesome. There are not eight there are 14 akusala jitta maybe you're thinking of the eight loba jitta 
Or maybe you're thinking of an eight kusilajit, in which case there are more than eight, right? There should be... There will be 12. Yeah, you could argue there's eight. For most people, there's eight, I guess. Uh, Sobhanajitas. But, you know, Abhidhamma is, Abhidhamma is like reading the label on a medicine bottle. You don't use that information unless you want to make medicine. But no, you just take the medicine. It's useful for teachers, but not so useful for practice. Not in that way anyway. I mean, it's useful to help you understand what it is that you're doing. But beyond that, you just have to do it. When you meditate, of course, there's kusala. Kusala is coming up. A kusala is going down. Should one meditate on illness and discard the positives? I don't understand. One should meditate on illness, yes. I don't understand discard the positives. Does that mean don't meditate on the good things? In If in which case, if it does, uh, then the answer is no. You have to patience. Patience in Buddhism is being patient with good things and patient, patient with bad things and patient with good things. When good things come, it requires patience to not chase them. That's also patience, and that's also necessary. Which means when you when you want something, as I say, wanting, wanting, you like something, you're liking, and you're happy, you have to meditate on it. Say happy, happy. The same as with illness. Does doing conscious good actions compensate for bad karma, which are mostly unconscious? It can. Um, it's, again, it's very complicated, so it's not like they're going to just, just magically cancel each other out, but they can cancel each other out. You do good things, people are going to, uh, you know, good things are going to come to you externally, internally. It's going to make you a better person. Your mind is going to be more focused. You do evil things, well, that's going to dis destabilize you and the world around you. So they fight against each other. Most of us are like that. We have good things come to us and bad things, and some of the good things cancel out the bad things. But yes, doing good deeds is a great way to compensate meditation being the best my cat had killed a mouse and then i found its babies if i set them outside to die they would starve and be eaten but if i killed them they would not suffer their mom was dead i could not nurse them in this case is it breaking a precept by killing it seemed worse to let the elements kill them yeah it's a tough one no um i mean i've talked about this before you killing them is disrupting their state and it's disrupting your mind because you are doing something that they don't want. You know, nothing wants to be killed. You know, that's arguable. If some people do actually want to die. But you know, there's an argument that a person who wants to die is because they aren't able to cope with reality. And the best thing you could do for these these kittens is to find a way to um, to raise them, you know, there are ways to raise baby kittens if you want to do a good thing for them. Now, 
It may sound cruel, and I'm going to get some downvotes for this probably. Never bothered me before. Um, but you don't have any any obligation to them. I don't know. That sounds very cruel. But in some cases, you're not obligated. What my point is, you're not obligated to end the suffering of others. You're not obligated to um, solve everyone's problems, because the argument is that if that were the case, then where would you draw the line? There is no line to draw. You can arbitrarily draw the line at that which I am comfortable doing or that which I have time to do. So you could obviously, I mean, that's what most people would do. They would say, well, I can at least look after these kittens. And you might even argue that you have an obligation to, but it's arbitrary, you know? And you know, it, it, it goes back to this idea of what's important and what's meaningful, what's significant. The idea that these kittens um, dying, starving, let's say, which would be fairly cruel, but actually not. You know, starving, starvation isn't apparently that bad of a death. You just get weak and die, I guess. There's some pain associated with it, but it's not as as deaths go. I mean, there are people in India, even today, I think, that starve themselves as a religious practice. They die of starvation as a religious practice. So giants do it. Um, but, I mean, suppose they did that. It, it's not really a significant reality. Those beings have been born and died countless times. I mean, it sounds so awful to say, but I would argue that that's more because of our short-sightedness. We take death to be so significant. Yeah, okay, Buddhism said it's significant, but not in the same way. The death of those cats is quite insignificant, even to them, because they're going to do it again in three years. They're going to be born again as cats and die again. No, not three years. How long do cats live? Not long. 10 years, 20 years. And even the death of humans isn't significant. I think this is important to realize, is that you know, it's not such a big deal. Everyone, you know, there's deaths going on all around us. We, we avoid it, right? But in this neighborhood that I'm living in, people are probably dying every day. You realize that as a, as a Buddhist, as a Buddhist monk, because you get invited to funerals, and you're like, wow, people really die a lot because you're constantly going to these funerals. I wouldn't take these situations so hard. You, know, you raise the cats. Okay, great. You know, maybe if you're lucky, one of them will be born a human. Great, more humans. I mean, it is a good thing. You want to do good things? You want to raise the cats? Good for you. It's a good thing. It's not that significant. That's got to sound pretty awful to most people, especially it has to do with cats. They're such a, they have such an enamoration with these cruel, terrible, villainous creatures. Now yeah, they're not all bad, but most of them are. And most of them are not bad just because they're too lazy to be bad. But you put any cat out in the wild and they wouldn't hesitate to kill and maim and do terrible, cruel things, I would argue. I think I shut everybody up. 
All right, I'm going to go now. Thank you all for bearing with me. I hope I didn't drive everyone away with my radical Buddhist teachings. Oh, mice. <laughs> sorry, they weren't cats. My cat killed a mouse. Yeah, sorry, I misread that. And baby mice. Yeah, I mean, it all still holds. It's not what people want to hear. It's certainly not what bodhisattvas do, which is inter an interesting point. If you want to be a Buddha, you have to do a lot more to save beings. So if that's your goal, then there you go. That's the point. I mean, the point, my teacher said it like this, is it's just about how much suffering you want. If you want to end suffering now, you end suffering now. Forget about the world. Death, everybody dies, let them die. Go. If you want to become a Buddha, well, there's just more suffering. You just have to work harder. A lot more work, that's all. So yes, you save the animals, you save the mice, you save the cats. You do whatever you can. Because it is good. It does make you a better person. I mean, you could argue as well that it's it's in, inefficient focusing all your energy on animals that can't do much good in the end anyway. Much better if you focused on humans. So I wouldn't put too much emphasis on saving cats and dogs and mice. I think there are 12 jittas, jittas, you're spelling it wrong, not cities, must be autocorrect, and 8 jittas for lobamula, yes, that's correct. Could you refer to them while doing something? For example, am I doing this with a pleasant feeling, with wrong view, with promptitude? You could, but it wouldn't be insight. It's like, if you look at a tiger, do you really have to say, is that, does that tiger have stripes? Where are the tiger's stripes? Is that really a tiger? When you look at the tiger, you see its stripes. When you look at reality, you're going to see that. You're going to see whether you're doing it with a pleasant feeling. You'll see all that. Abhidhamma is good to read because it makes you aware of the existence of these realities. So you're much more likely to catch them. You're much more likely to be able to realize that that's what they are. But you don't have to go looking. If you go looking, it's no longer meditation. Meditation is looking at the tiger. You'll see the stripes. All right. Good night. Thank you all for tuning in. See you all soon.